Welcome to MRCS on the Move. Bowels, bones, and backseat vibers. I'm your host, Naomi, but this is the podcast where you do the talking. Good evening, folks. I hope you are all well. I myself am enjoying the Friday evening feeling with a free weekend ahead, which is wonderful. So I hope all you guys have got something to look forward to as well. Um, We are going to cover today the salivary glands. Bit random, I know, but there we go. So we're going to go over the anatomy of them and then uh, talk about salivary gland pathology, specifically tumours. Okay, let's crack on. Uh, Please tell me what you know about the structure of the parotid gland. The parotid glands are paired glands that are pyramid shaped and they are lobular and irregular in their morphology. They are the largest of the salivary glands, divided into a superficial and deep part, and they are surrounded by a connective tissue capsule. What's the name of that connective tissue capsule? So it's the investing layer of the deep cervical fascia. What are the relations of the parotid gland? It lies on both sides of the face in a hollow known as the parotid region. Now the borders of this are quite easy to visualize actually if you think about the area that you're parotid gland is. So superiorly, your zygomatic arch, inferiorly, the inferior border of your mandible, anteriorly is your masseter muscle, posteriorly is your sternocleidomastoid and your external ear. Okay, so think about that square on the side of your face. What divides the superficial and deep parts of of the gland? So it's the facial nerve and its divisions. Brilliant. What's the name of the parotid glands duct? So it's called Stenson's gland. And where does this duct run? So it emerges at the anterior border. It runs over the masseter muscle and then dives deep to pierce the buccinator and the mucosal membrane of the mouth. And then it, it pierces into, drains into the oral cavity at the level of the second molar tooth. What structures then lie within the gland? So from laterally to medially, you've got your facial nerve, your retromandibular vein, your external carotid artery, and your 
carotid lymph nodes, okay? So a nerve, facial nerve, a vein, retromandibular vein, an artery, external carotid artery, and your lymph nodes. Uh, what are the branches of the facial nerve? So from up to down, T, Z, B, M, C. Best acronym I saw was 10 zebras buggered my car. I'm not sure if that word makes means this is explicit. <laughs> Naughtiest word I've said. 10 zebras buggered my car. So T for temporal, Z for zygomatic, B for buccal, M for marginal mandibular, and C for cervical. Temporal, zygomatic, buccal, marginal mandibular, and cervical. What are the tributaries of the retromandibular vein? These are some like bonus questions for you. So it's the maxillary and the superficial temporal vein. What are the branches of the external carotid? We'll do this some other time and come up with some clever acronym. But at the moment, we're just to remind us and give us a moment to think about it. So superior thyroid, ascending pharyngeal, your lingual, your facial, your occipital, your posterior auricular, your maxillary, and your superficial temporal. What is the blood supply to the parotid gland? Back to the man of the moment. That was a little tinkle from my wine glass. Shouldn't really sip while I'm recording, should I? <laughs> uh, it's the posterior auricular and the superficial temporal. So they branch from the external carotid within, within the gland. So that's the posterior auricular and the superficial temporal. Can you describe the autonomic, autonomic innovation of the parotid gland, please? So it has a parasympathetic and a sympathetic innervation, okay? The parasympathetic innervation comes from the glossopharyngeal nerve. It synapses with the otic ganglion, so glossopharyngeal, so cranial nerve nine. It synapses with the otic ganglion, carried, this fibers are then carried by the auricular temporal nerve to the gland. Now, parasympathetic innervation causes increased saliva production, okay? So parasympathetic is your glossopharyngeal to your otic ganglion in your auricular temporal nerve to increase saliva. Where does your sympathetic innervation come from? You might have already said it, sorry. So it's from your superior cervical ganglion and the fibers travel along the external carotid artery and it increases, oh, sorry, no, it doesn't, it 
inhibit saliva production. Okay, that's the protogland in a nutshell. The submandibular gland. Tell me about the location of the submandibular gland. So it sits beneath the body of the mandible. The gland wraps itself around the free border of the hyoid muscle, which divides it into its superficial and deep parts. The superficial part lies in the digastric triangle of the neck. What are the relations of the submandibular gland? So laterally, you've got your medial border of your mandible. Medially, you've got your hypoglossal and your glossopharynx and your styloglossal, sorry. Anteriorly, anterior belly of the digastric, so that's that anterior border of the triangle. Posteriorly, you've got your posterior belly of the digastric and your stylohyoid muscle. And then your lingual and your hypoglossal nerve is there as well. What's the name of the submandibular duct and how does it travel? Not like first class or anything, but you know where. So it's called Wharton's duct and it emerges from the anterior of the gland, travels along the floor of the mouth, forwards along the floor of the mouth. It's crossed a couple of times by the lingual nerve and then it opens uh, just laterally to the frenulum. What is the blood supply to the submandibular gland? So it's your facial and your lingual artery, so two of the branches of the external carotid. What's its lymphatic drainage? So it's the submandibular and the deep cervical. I didn't ask you, but what's, this, what's the lymphatic drainage of the parotid gland? So that's the parotid and the deep cervical, okay? So the name of the gland and the deep cervical. Where is the incision made for a submandibular surgery? It's a standard incision. So there's a transverse line, three centimeters below the lower border of the mandible. And why do we do this? What does it avoid damage to? The marginal mandibular nerve. Okay. What will you see clinically if you damage the marginal mandibular nerve? Drooping of the ipsilateral angle of the mouth. What else is at risk during a submandibular surgery? There are some nerves, more nerves. So there's the lingual nerve, as we've mentioned, the hypoglossal nerve, the nerve to the mylohyoid muscle, if you think what's nearby. So uh, the myelohyoid muscle is really nearby. And then the marginal mandibular, as we've spoken about. 
And then the vessels which are often ligated or normally deliberately ligated is your facial artery and vein. What is the nerve supply to the submandibular gland? So we'll just talk about the parasympathetic fibres here. So they run in the corda tympani branch of the facial nerve. They join the lingual nerve and then sort of hitchhike to synapse with the submandibular ganglion, the submandibular ganglion, and then the postganglionic fibres travel directly to the gland. And as with the parotid, increased saliva secretion. And finally, the little gland left over is the sublingual. Where is the sublingual gland found? So it's submucosally beneath the floor of the mouth. What are its relations? So anteriorly, it's the opposite gland. Posteriorly, it's the deep submandibular gland. Medially is the genoglossus and the lingual nerve. And then laterally is the mandible. And inferiorly, it sits above the mylohyoid muscle. So it sits on the mylohyoid muscle, the mandible at the side, the submandibular gland at the back, and the me medially is the genioglossus lingual and lingual nerve. And above is obviously the tongue. Okay, final question before our break. Can you tell me what you know about the histological makeup of the salivary glands? They are made up of echini which are secretory units, and ducts. So echini and ducts. In the parotids, these are predominantly serous-producing echini. The submandibular gland, it's a bit of a mixture between serous and mucous echini. And then the sublingual is mainly mucous. So parotids, serous, submandibular mixed, sublingual, mainly mucous. Okay? Fabulous. So that's anatomy. 11 minutes, 12 minutes, however long. Anyway, a bit of a break now and we'll come back for some pathology. See you soon.
and it came under a dreamy laid back genre. So uh, bring yourself back in, snap back to it. Yeah, sorry if it was a bit sleepy. But let's go on to some salivary tumor knowledge. So, where do we find most of the salivary gland tumors? Eighty percent are in the parotid gland, about fifteen percent are in the submandibular gland, and then roughly five percent are in the um, sublingual. And then there's a few like minor glands that you can get them in, but they're very, very, very rare. What are the rates of benign and malignant neoplasms in the different glands? So as you move down from parotid to sublingual, so ear to chin, you get less benign, okay? So parotid is 80% benign, submandibular is 50% benign, and sublingual is only 20% benign. What age groups are normally affected by the benign and malignant tumors? And malignant are generally the elder population. Benign, they peak around 40, so your younger patient. Okay, tell me what different tumors do you know? So we've got benign, we've got your pleomorphic adenoma and your warfarin's tumour. And then examples of malignant are your mucoepidermoid. Sorry, I really struggle with that word. Mucoepidermoid carcinomas. And then your adenoid cystic carcinomas, your akini cell carcinomas, and then your adeno and your squamous cell carcinomas. Okay, that's in reducing order. So your mucoepidermoid carcinomas are the most common. Right, what are pleomorphic adenomas? What can you tell me about them? So they are the commonest of all salivary gland tumors, neoplasms. They are, as we said before, a benign neoplasm. <laughs> um, um, and they're about 80% of parotid tumours. They peak roughly in those aged 50, and they contain a stromal and epithelial elements histologically. Generally present as slow-growing and painless parotid masses, and they are treated generally with a superficial um, parotid, parotidectomy, because that's the most, most commonly just affects the superficial lobe. There is a small potential of these having some malignant transformation. So if you have a patient where they've had a, a growth and then that's slow growing and painless and suddenly it starts to grow, rapidly grow, 
pleomorphic adenoma with malignant transformation. Okay. What are some risk factors for these sub salivary glands? That's what we're talking about. <laughs> salivary gland tumors. So radiation is a risk factor, so local radiation. Epstein-Barr virus infection. Smoking, do you know which one smoking is specifically linked to? It's your Warthrin's tumor. And then there are some genetic changes that increase your risk, which include a P53 uh, gene alteration. How do they generally present? So they are slow growing and painless masses generally. If they become malignant or they are malignant, you're more likely to see things like facial nerve palsies, local invasion and overlying skin changes. Which one is more commonly um, associated with a facial nerve palsy and why? So it's the adenoid cystic carcinoma, and that's because it more rapid, re readily invades as a perineural invasion. Can be associated with pain if there is hemorrhage or from local invasion. And then when these masses get big, they can lead to obstruction and mass effects, which can cause things like airway obstructions, dysphagia, and hoarseness. So how are you gonna investigate these patients? So you'll obviously investigate them with initially your history and your examination. So on examination, you want to comment on the location of the mass, the, the feel of it. Is it mobile? Is it What's the texture like? Is it tethered to the overlying skin? Is it painful to, to palpate? And it, then you look for things like your facial nerve palsy, any lymphadenopathy in the neck. You're then going to do your routine bloods, looking at inflammatory markers to see if there's any signs of infection and things like the FBC. Then you'll do a ultrasound of the mass and probably a fine needle aspiration cytology. If malignant cells are found, you'll then go on to do a CT of the neck and the thorax and possibly an MRI that more, better looks at invasion of, of nerves. Okay, how are you gonna manage this patient? So you'll first, obviously, as we've talked about loads, and I'm sure you're getting right, you'll discuss this patient at an MDT with all the investigations. So they can be managed surgically or non-surgically. Now the surgical management will depend on the tumour itself. So generally it will be a resection plus or minus a neck dissection, so the lymph node dissection, plus or minus any reconstruction that might be needed. Now the resection could be just a superficial uh, parotidectomy, which would take off the superficial part of the parotid load node at, over the leaving the facial nerve. A total conservative parotidectomy saves the facial nerve. A radical just sacrifices the facial nerve. 
and an extended involves local structures around it as well. So that will be dependent on the invasion of the, of the tumour. Non-surgical treatment is generally in the form of radiotherapy and in an adjuvant setting. And this can be used for high-grade disease, uh, any perineural invasion, any lymph node spread, and any residual disease. Okay. Chemotherapy is not generally used because salivary gland tumours are, are not generally responsive to it. Okay, and nearly at the end of this, this episode. So what are the complications of salivary gland surgery? We've touched on some of them. This is spanning all sort of parotid submandibular as well, not specific to each of them. Got early complications would include your hematoma. So if you're doing operations in the neck, so this will be submandibular operations. Expanding hematomas can cause local compression and is an emergency and is decompressing urgently. Often think about this in the case of thyroid operations. So then you've got your facial nerve injury, which can be noticed in theatre. Marginal mandibular injury, which we talked about earlier in submandibular operations. What was, what was it that you would see if they damaged the marginal mandibular nerve? Drooping of the angle of the mouth. Absolutely. Then a late complication of parotidectomies is something called Frey's syndrome. What is Frey's syndrome? So Frey's syndrome is a complication of operations near the parotid gland. So it's when there's damage to the auricular temporal nerve as it passes through the parotid gland, and then you get inappropriate regeneration of this, which leads to such a thing as gustary sweating. So it's sort of sweating and redness in the face when there's a stimulation to salivate. So when you would have previously salivated, i.e. with food, you actually get a sympathetic response and you get this sweating, so gustary sweating. And then one of the complications late that can happen is a salivary gland fistulation. Fab. Um, well, I think you deserve another pat on the back. Well done. That was a good session, I think. Um, we'll try and do, or I'll try and do a benign salivary gland pathology episode at some point, because obviously there's lots of other reasons why they would be swollen in your differentials. So I'll do that at some point. I hope you all have a good evening thank you again do keep giving me feedback if there's any way i can improve this and make it better for you guys but yeah take care folks i will see you on the next ride bye bye oh, well, a dim, bone, dim, bone, dim. Try.